Thank you so much for um, hosting the conference and for inviting us to be here. I want to say special thank, thanks uh, about your pastor, Rick, who's been wonderfully generous, and it's just been wonderful to hear about what the Lord's been doing here uh, in this church, and uh, to see all of you and to know that there's a faithful gospel ministry here in Southern California, and um, I I'm just can't tell you how enthusiastic I am. And grateful I am to, to, to be a part of, of what God's doing here, at least for this weekend. So thank you so much. And uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us through Christ. Father, thank you that you have not left us here to grope around and to try to figure out for ourselves the way we're supposed to think and believe and to live. But you have revealed yourself to us in your son Jesus and you have left this testimony for us in your word. And we believe that Jesus Christ has been crucified and raised for sinners. And we are sinners. And we are grateful that you have saved us and you've called us forth. And I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds now to hear from you. Open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story about a high school student named Billy Lucas, who in 2010 was a sophomore in high school in Greensburg, Indiana. And he was 15 years old and he was known among his classmates as out and as an openly gay student in his high school. And because of that, he was singled out regularly for bullying. In fact, it was something that many of his classmates got in on. They made fun of him and did different cruel things to him. And one time, one of his fellow students, just to embarrass him, pulled his chair out from under him and he fell on the floor and everybody in the classroom was, was laughing at him. And as he was sitting there and his uh, classmates were getting a kick out of this, the person who pulled the chair out said to him, why don't you just go and hang yourself? And so for Billy, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. He decided he wasn't going to take it anymore. From then on out, he was going to come back, and if they started in on him, he was going to resist. And so, sure enough, the next day, this was September in 2010, he comes back to school, ready to, revit, to resist, and like clockwork, his classmates start in on him again, and they're making fun of him, and so he stands up in the midst of a classroom, and he just lets out this string of obscenities at all of his classmates. Well, he gets caught with the string of loud obscenities against his classmates, he gets sent to the principal's office, and he gets suspended from school. So he's at home that night, and he places this curious call to 911, and he tells the dispatcher, um, I'm causing problems for my mom, you need to send somebody out. He hangs up the phone. And uh, his, the, the dispatcher calls right back, and his mom picks up the phone, and he lives alone with his mom on a farm. And his mom picks up the phone, the dispatcher says, we just got this strange call, is everything okay? She said, yeah, everything's fine, I don't know what that was all about. She hangs up, she goes outside, where she believes Billy is out putting the horses in the barn, but she goes to the barn where she finds that he had, in fact, hung himself and taken his own life. And so some major news outlets at the time picked up the story of Billy Lucas's suicide, 
And the news spread around the world. And there was a sex advice columnist named uh, Dan Savage who picked up the story and decided to write about it. And he actually decided to do something about it. Uh, Dan Savage himself is a gay man. And he launched this YouTube channel called the It Gets Better Project. I'm just curious. Anybody seen the It Gets Better Project on YouTube or online? A little bit here. The, the point of the channel was very simple. He started it uh, as a place where gay adults could upload videos of themselves telling their stories about how life gets better after high school. And their messages are aimed directly at the Billy Lucases of the world who are unhappy and who are suffering um, for the way they feel and their sexuality. And so they're losing hope. And so the messages are supposed to give them hope. And the messages are simple. Things may be hard now. You just hang in there. After high school, you'll find a gay community. And to others who will affirm your sexuality, you can be married. Maybe even adopt kids. You can have a full life. It may be awful now, but it gets better. You don't have to take your own life. You just need to hang in there. But what interested me about the It Gets Better project was what Dan Savage said motivated him to start the site. And his response, his motivation was a mixture of compassion towards high school students like Billy Lucas and also anger towards Christians. And so Dan Savage wrote a column about why he was starting the site. And I'm going to read you a little bit of what he said. Dan Savage said this, Another gay teenager in another small town has killed himself. Hope you're pleased with yourselves. Tony Perkins, he's the leader of a Christian advocacy uh, group. Hope you're pleased with yourselves, Tony Perkins, Perkins, and all the other Christians out there who, give, who oppose anti-bullying programs and who give actual Christians a bad name. I wish I could have talked to this kid for five minutes. I wish I could have told Billy that it gets better. I wish I could have told him that however bad things were, However isolated and alone he was, it gets better. And so Dan Savage goes on and he explains why he started the channel. And in the first video, it's, a, it's Dan Savage and his partner and their adopted child together talking and showing, offering themselves as examples uh, of the fact that it gets better. Just, just hang in there. You don't need to self-loathe and, and take your own life. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about how we as Christians should love gay people in a culture in which there are many voices, like Dan Savages. If you're listening to the Dan Savages of the world, obviously what they're saying is far different than what the scriptures are saying about these things. And the fact is, if you are a Christian living on planet Earth today, you are going to be encountering people who are struggling with sexuality issues. Their own sexuality, maybe they have family members who are dealing with these things. There's probably people in this room who are struggling with these things. And if you are a Christian, it will fall to you to speak truth and love into some very difficult situations. And the question that you are going to have to ask and answer between now and then is how are you going to speak? What are you going to say? Obviously, you need to speak biblically, but how do you do that when there are so many people saying today that the Bible is just not sufficient for this task? What God has spoken is not really meeting the need of the moment. 
And people are really telling you that there's, there's only two options for you in how you should address these issues with your friends and neighbors as Christians. And we'll call these two options the intolerance option and the tolerance option. The intolerance option is the idea that if you oppose homosexuality in any way, then you're intolerant of gay people as persons. You hate both homosexuality and homosexuals. You don't think they deserve basic rights as persons, and and you think that they don't even deserve civil rights, and if your religion tells you that homosexuality is wrong, then you and your religion are bigoted because you promote hate against gay people. And so that's the intolerance option. The other option that you have is the tolerance option. That's the idea that the only way to show love and compassion to gay people is to recognize that homosexuality is morally acceptable. You must not only affirm that gay people have civil rights, but also that the way that they've chosen to live their lives is is totally fine. So you have to affirm the persons and the lifestyle if you want to be truly tolerant. And so the tolerance option and the intolerance option are regularly set before you as the only options that you have in speaking into this issue as, as, Christian, but my, as Christians. But my question for you today is this. Are these really the only two options? If you had known Billy Lucas, and if you had the opportunity to speak to him before he died, is it true that your only options were either to hate him or to affirm him? This is a false choice. There is another option. We're, we're going to call it the biblical option. It also happens to be the most loving option. Biblically defined, love will determine both what we speak and how we speak when we minister to our neighbors who don't know Christ, including gay neighbors who don't know Christ. And and my concern this morning is not really with the larger culture war that's gone on over gay marriage and some of these other things. Um, I think Christians have a role to play in that discussion. I've, I've played a role in that discussion. That's But it's not my aim this morning to focus on that. My aim this morning is for us to focus on how we as Christians are to address the gospel to those who are experiencing struggles with same-sex attraction or or a gay identity. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 to 15 says this, We're no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by winds of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And so our first responsibility here as Christians is to bear witness, is to speak the truth in love. Now, there's a ton that I could say about what it means to speak the truth in love when it comes to homosexuality, but I want to focus on three things as we think about this that have to be on any list of how we ought to speak to the Billy Lucases of the world. Here's the three things. Speak the truth. Speak the gospel. Speak humility. Speak the truth. Speak the gospel. Speak humility. And those three things correspond with the three texts in the New Testament that explicitly address the issue of homosexuality. So that's, what we're, that's where we're going to go for the rest of our time. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. In verses 26 to 27. This is where we'll see an exhortation to speak the truth. Because we're seeing here Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaking the truth about the moral status of of homosexuality. 
What is the truth here? And, and I should say up front, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27 is prob- probably the most important verses in the whole Bible on this topic. And they're the most contested verses, you should know. But this is what the Apostle Paul says. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, one thing that's unique about this text is um, in other texts of the Bible that address this issue, it addresses it only from the male perspective. This is the one text that explicitly says male and female homosexuality is identified as sin. And in fact, it says both male and female have abandoned the natural function of sexuality to engage in these same-sex acts. Now, you would think, well, what else needs to be said here? This seems so clear. In every translation of the Bible, it seems to be so clear. There's not a major dispute on that if you're just looking even at an English translation of the Bible. What, what's the deal here? Why is this so unclear to some people today? Um, and, I'm, and by some people, I mean even people within the church. Well, there are some who will tell you that when Paul uses the word natural, he's referring to a person's own sense of their sexual orientation. And so that this verse is only uh, coming down on people who participate in same-sex activity who have a heterosexual orientation. It's not saying anything about people who have a homosexual orientation. So if you're homosexually inclined and you act that way, this text isn't talking about that. If you're going against nature, your heterosexual nature, then, then that would be wrong. But it wouldn't necessarily be wrong if, you're, if you have a homosexual nature. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is it's not what Paul's talking about. And it's not what Paul means by nature. When Paul talks about nature, it's not defined by our own personal sense of our sexual desires. For Paul, nature is defined by what we find in the Garden of Eden when there was, uh, b- before there was any sin in the world. That's what's natural. That's what nature is. What do you find there? Well, you find God's intention expressed for our sexuality and you find one man and one woman in a covenanted heterosexual union. That's what you find. Before there's any sin in the world, that's what you find. And that's how Paul defines nature. And any departure from that would be considered unnatural in, in Paul's way of thinking. And so when women or men exchange the natural function, in his words, they are committing indecent acts, in his words, in verse 27. So this text is clearly bringing the message that homosexual behavior is sinful, but it's also saying, in keeping with what the rest of the Bible teaches, that the desire is sinful too. And if you look at verse 26, he says, for this reason God gave them over to what? Not just degrading deeds, but degrading passions. Verse 26, men burned in their desire toward one another. And so what the rest of the Bible teaches about sin in general is also true about homosexuality. It's not just the doing of the deed that's problematic. It's the desiring of the deed that's problematic and that is revealing a very deep brokenness in our own hearts. And so I don't know how Paul could be clearer here because He's, he's, he's rendering a moral statement on what homosexuality is and that it is something that is 
sinful. But this is precisely where things are getting a little bit dicey today. Even even among those who are labeling themselves within within the evangelical movement. This is why it's so important for us to speak the truth of the Scripture on this because the Scripture is being contested right now. And people are telling you that what you've always thought the Scripture means, it doesn't really mean that. Um, Some of you are familiar with the name Brian McLaren. He was a pastor in Maryland. And um, in 2005, he was voted um, by Time Magazine. He was named by Time Magazine as one of the top 25 evangelicals in the world pastor in Maryland. So this list in Time Magazine was like Billy Graham, John Stott, a host of others, and, and Brian McLaren. That was 2005. 2006, uh, McLaren wrote uh, an article on the Christianity Today website, and he called on evangelicals to stop speaking as if they know the truth on this issue. And he gave two reasons. He basically said, we're not really sure what the Bible teaches about this. And the second reason is, is it turns people off to Christianity. And so he called for evangelicals just to stop talking about the issue altogether. Don't say anything about it. We don't know what the Bible means, and you're going to alienate people from coming to Jesus if you talk about about this. And so he said, let's have a five-year moratorium where we don't talk about this at all. And it'll kind of make Christianity more attractive to people. Well, uh, before the five years were up, In 2010, he wrote a book, and the book was titled A New Kind of Christianity, and guess what it said? It came out total affirmation of committed same-sex relationships. That's what a new kind of Christianity includes. And he made the case that the only reason that Orthodox Christians are resisting this is because they don't like gay people, and they need a scapegoat. Somebody to blame for the things that they think are going wrong in, in the world. And he says, really, and, and really what, they're, what Orthodox Christians are doing by holding on to the traditional teaching of the church, what they're doing is they're mistreating gay people. And they're being um, intolerant. But my question is this. Who's really mistreating gay people here? How is it harmful to sinners to hold out to them the grace of the gospel? How is it harmful to call them to repent and to be reconciled to the God who made them and who loves them? That's what our message is, isn't it? We're not putting a stiff arm up to gay people when we speak the truth about homosexuality. We're not doing that. We're trying to make known to them the path to life. And we're trying to treat them like we do every other sinner. And the path to life is a narrow way that requires us to leave all of our old ways behind. And what's harmful and unloving is to tell gay people, and really just any sinner, to tell them that they don't need to repent of their sin in order to come to Christ. Every time somebody tells a sinner that they don't need to repent of their sin in order to follow Christ, that person is leading that sinner away from Jesus, not to Jesus. That is the most unloving thing that you can do. That is the most harmful thing that you can do for a person, to bar the way to Jesus. But how many preachers, how many Christians are out there today who are entertaining the idea that they can reach more people for Jesus if they just give up what the Bible says about marriage, about sexuality, about this? 
But they aren't leading people to Jesus when they do that. They're leading people away from Jesus. And there's a great divide coming to the evangelical movement right now. Mark my words. It is here. We are going to find out who is willing to believe what the Scriptures say about these things and who's not. And our willingness to believe the Word of God when it gets really hard is being tested on this issue right now. And there are some people who are going to be willing to go with God's Word right up until it costs them on this issue. The problem is, is that we're not doing anybody any favors if we cave on this. We have to speak the truth. The Scripture is unambiguous on this. We have to speak the truth. Second thing, quickly, speak the gospel. Everybody turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Which means, not everybody gets in. Those who die in their sin as unrepentant sinners will perish for eternity. They do not experience the redemptive reign of God through Christ. They're excluded from the kingdom. That's what that means. Because they are unrighteous, because they're unrepentant of sin, they don't believe in Jesus, they are excluded. Then he lists the kind of people who are unrighteous and who are excluded from God's kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't single out homosexuality, but he certainly includes homosexuality amongst a number of unrepentant kinds of sins that will keep people out of the kingdom. But even though he's not singling it out, it's definitely included here. So there's no question about the moral status of homosexuality. In fact, Paul, my translation says effeminate nor homosexuals. Many of your translations may say something like men who commit homosexuality, but it's, it's Paul's being, in the Greek, he's being very explicit here about both halves of a homosexual encounter. And he's saying that neither inherit the kingdom of God as they are unrepentant. There's no question about the moral status of homosexuality. But look what he says. Even though the stakes are really high, you don't get into the kingdom if you're in unrepentant sin, including homosexual sin. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Which means, I'm writing to you, Corinthian believers. You, some of you were homosexual folks. Some of you were doing this kind of sin. This is who you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Which means, go read Acts chapter 18 and read what happened. Paul rolls up into Corinth and he begins preaching in the synagogue to the Jews. They kick him out. Then guess what he does? He starts talking to the Gentiles. And guess what? The Gentiles don't have the law. And they have all kinds of sexual sins characterizing them. And Paul begins to preach to the Gentiles and they start getting converted. You know why? Because he's preaching the gospel to them. And it saves them. And they come to Christ. And Christ changed them. 
They believe that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead, and they are justified, sanctified, and washed in the name of the Spirit of our God, Paul says. That means, quite simply, God is in the business of saving sinners. This gospel that we have and that we cherish is for sinners. Every sinner, including gay folks. How many of you have heard the name Rosaria Butterfield? You ever heard that name? Okay. She wrote a book. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see so many hands go up. She wrote a book called, uh, titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Rosaria Butterfield, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Um, I won't tell you the whole story, but it's, it's basically her testimony. Um, she was a out lesbian in a long-term relationship with a partner. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, and her specialty and special research interest was feminist, uh, feminism, and all things having to do with queer theory and gay studies. She was, a pre she was the leader, faculty sponsor for all the camp a, a ton of campus organizations that were the, the, uh, the uh, um, gay advocacy groups. She was known among all the students as being one of their main advocates. And she wrote an article, an opinion piece in the paper um, back when Promise Keepers was a big deal. And she wrote against patriarchy and how that's expressed in, in Promise Keepers. And she wrote this. It was in the local paper. And she got all this feedback. Um, she got a lot of fan mail and a lot of hate mail. People who agreed with her, people who disagreed with her. And she put the hate mail in one stack on her desk and she put the fan mail in one stack on her desk and she just enjoyed both stacks. <laughs> and um, she got this one letter, though, that came from a local pastor. It's an evangelical pastor in town. And he disagreed with her, but he was nice and engaging and respectful. And he invited her to dinner to sit and talk about these things more. And uh, she didn't know what stack to put it in, so she put it in the trash. And, uh, but she couldn't get it off of her mind, so she eventually went and she pulled it out of the trash, uncrumpled it, and she ended up calling the guy. It turns out the guy's an elderly pastor and in a church not far from where she lived, and he lived not far from where she lived, and she took him up on his offer, and she went to his home. And she had dinner with him and his wife. And they just had discussions over dinner and over coffee. And they met regularly for about the next year. And she started kind of looking, coming to the church a little bit. She started reading the Bible. And she was talking about it with them. And I won't tell you the whole story, but over the course of about a year, God saved her. He just flat saved her. He called her out of the relationship that she was in. It turned her professional life upside down because her professional life was so embedded in, in feminist and gay advocacy. I'll let you read the story. It's an amazing story. But I mean, he, he didn't just kind of save her. He like really saved her. She believes the same stuff you and I believe about all these things. And it's amazing what God did in her life. And you know what happened? There wasn't a special program at that church. There wasn't um, anything amazing or flashy. It was just ordinary Christians reaching out to ordinary sinners with our extraordinary gospel. And God saved her. Here's my question to you. Do we believe that this gospel still saves? 
Do you have the confidence of your convictions? I'm a little bit concerned that sometimes we're viewing the fact that we're becoming kind of a prophetic minority in our culture these days. And I'm concerned that we're looking at the culture and we're thinking, ah, we're surrounded by people who are hard cases. Do you realize that God specializes in the hard cases? You don't have to be an expert in all of these things to be faithful, to preach the gospel to sinners, and to see God do surprising things in people's lives just with your ordinary witness. Listen, if we're going to be faithful, we've got to speak the truth, but we've got to speak the gospel to every sinner that we meet. Let me say one last thing. We've got to speak the truth, speak the gospel, finally speak humility. Quickly, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Let me re- I'm going to make a quick point here, and I'll, I'll wrap up. But Paul says this, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Basically, he says the law is made not for righteous people, but for people who are sinners. He gives a long vice list, another list of sins, among which there in the list you see homosexuality. And it's in a pretty bad lot. You've got kidnapping and murder and all this, but it's very clear the moral status of homosexuality. And he's saying it's it's a bad deal. But look what he says in verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me, in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see what Paul just said there? When I say speak humility, what I mean is speak with humility, and I mean speak like Paul speaks. Paul has just rattled off this list of pretty ignominious sinners. And then he starts thinking about himself, and he still thinks about himself as the worst of the lot. What I'm trying to say is, If we're speaking with humility, we are speaking as people. We are dying men speaking to dying men, right? We are fallen. We are sinners. And it doesn't matter who really is the biggest sinner in the world. When it comes to your sin, you ought to feel like you are the biggest sinner in the world. And it ought always to amaze you most that God had mercy to save you in spite of your sin. That's how we're supposed to feel about things. In other words, if we're Christians, we're carrying about within us a kind of humility that, look, we've got more in common with the sinners around us than we want to admit sometimes. We are all children of our father, Adam. And we are all born with this inclination which is in rebellion against God. And it is only the grace of God that changes that for us, any of us. There's many different kinds of sin in the world, but there's only one root. It all traces back to the fall in Adam, and we all are connected there, which means we've got to have a tremendous humility about us. We don't speak as people who have a leg up religiously. We speak as saved sinners, so we speak with 
humility. We're often presented with this false choice about our witness to our neighbors, and in particular our gay neighbors, this idea that we can either walk the path of homophobia and hatred or we can surrender our ancient beliefs to affirm what the Bible says we can never affirm. But that's an unnecessary dilemma. We can speak the truth, we can speak the gospel, and we can speak with humility, and we can do it because we're speaking the truth in love. We can love and minister to gay people while still holding fast to the biblical norms for human sexuality. In fact, we have to do that. Otherwise, we're abandoning the only path to life that they have. Because it's the only path to life that any of us have. And we have to bear witness to that. And if we don't, who is going to speak to the Billy Lucases of the world? There, that there is hope. If we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. Well, there's so much more I want to say, but I'm just going to pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would use your word to change us and to transform us into your image. And I pray for all these who are here, uh, some who are here who are perhaps, um, this is same-sex attraction and a gay identity is a, is a part of their own struggle. Perhaps they're here of close family members, close friends, they're dealing with this and Father, I just pray that you would meet the needs and provide clarity and gospel purpose to every heart and mind in this room. Use your word to do this. Lord, give us holy resolve to love your word, to love your gospel, and to know that Jesus Christ came to save to the uttermost. And each one of us is the first evidence of that. Lord, use your word to change us. Help us to see Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners, among whom we are the foremost. And help us to bear witness and make us fruitful, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.